You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Great job, kids. Give them one more hand. That was fantastic. What a great week. And Jen Ingram, before you get too far away, can you come on up here with me? And Sarah, would you mind taking my unicorn and glasses here? Not really, but would you take them anyway? Will you hold on to those? Oh, yeah, those aren't quite mine. So there are so many people to thank for um, pulling off this Vacation Bible School. It was truly an epic, epic week. And when we began talking about this and planning it seriously several months ago, numbers were still significantly restricted on what we were able to do, and we didn't know if we were going to be able to pull off an in-person VBS. And from the get-go, Jen Ingram was saying, we're going to do this, and we're going to do two sessions like we did a couple years ago, morning and evening, and we're just, we're just going to make it happen. And our team pulled off in about eight weeks what we normally take five months to pull together because it became apparent this really is going to happen, and now we need to get serious. So... It really is remarkable. So, Jen, thank you so much. Just a small thank you from the congregation and our church family. We're just so grateful for your leadership. She and her team have lived here for the last week. And so we think you should have some time away to just have a nice dinner with you and your husband. So Taco Bell is a great place to eat. So we did a little better than that. But would you just join me one last time in thanking Jen and our leadership team for all that they've invested. You're welcome. That was so fantastic. Just fantastic. And I don't have a clicker. So Jacob Adler, would you mind running a clicker up to me for the PowerPoint? And with that being said, there's another thank you that I would like to put out there. And that is you feel her presence literally every weekend because she's our graphic designer and our assistant office manager. Thank you, Jacob. And her name, thank you, Dr. Diggory. Sorry, I forgot. Um, and and she, uh, her name is Jess Wally, and she is our assistant office manager, graphic designer, and um, she is going to be relocating, unfortunately, with her family in just the next couple of weeks. And so we want to thank Jess for her good work and um, for all that she does and has done. And most of all, we're not just going to miss her miss her work. We're going to miss we're going to miss her. And so would you just join me in thanking Jessica Wally um, for blessing us. There she is. And since she's our graphic designer, we had to pirate this slide in. We had someone else make it, so she would not approve of this, but we didn't ask. We're thanking her anyway. But you are going to see her job description for her role become available now with her leaving, um, and that's the assistant office manager graphic designer role. So that'll be available um, tomorrow. But we love you, Jess. We're going to miss you. And thank you so much for being a part of our family, your family, wherever you go. And speaking of that, once again, for all of you who are joining us online and are either watching this live or will be watching it as a recording or listening to it as a recording later, thank you for being a part of our family as well. We just love being able to connect together this morning. So just real quickly, back to Vacation Bible School, some quick stats for you. We had 380 kids come through the doors this last week. They were served by 116 adults and a great 
um, leadership team of student leaders. And uh, really what we were trying to resource this year was my father's house. For those of you who are not familiar, my father's house is an outreach right here in our community to homeless families. Um, and they do amazing, amazing work. And we um, support them and are in partnership with them. And the kiddos joined us this week. They donated over 2,000 packs of fruit snacks, applesauce and crackers. Folks, that's a lot of fruit snacks and applesauce and crackers. Over 400 juice boxes. And they came and emptied their piggy bank and hit mom and dad and grandpa and grandma up and whoever for some money and they raised over $2,482.26. I think that's pretty fantastic too. So very proud, very, very proud of our kids. And, And part of the festivities, as you saw from the video this last week, was our family fun night and I always look forward to that. That was just fantastic. The weather was nice and hot and sunny. It was just a terrific night to be out on the field this last Friday night. And in advance of that, I was asked if I wanted to be in the dunk tank. And when I was asked about that, I thought, do you really know what you're getting yourself into? Because I have been in the dunk tank in previous family fun nights, it's been some years, and I've forgotten how cold the water is. We don't heat that water, it comes right out of the hose, and it was cold. And so in a space of about 25 minutes, I went into the water 35 times, and yes, I counted. And for those of you who are our guests, you're feeling sympathetic. Thank you for that. You know, for our church family and regular tenders, it probably wasn't enough times, right, to go in the water for me. But it was just, it was fun. It really, really was. And we come to a passage now where two of Jesus' disciples in particular, the brothers, James and John, are going to make a request of him. And his response will be basically, do you really know what you're getting into? Do you really understand what you're asking? And if you've been with us in this journey through the Gospel of Matthew, in these last couple couple chapters especially, Jesus has been helping us understand what life in the kingdom is all about. This is what life in the kingdom of God really is all about. And he's going to do that once again in this amazing passage that we'll look at. So as we prepare to dive into God's Word, I just want to lead us in prayer one more time, and then we'll get right to it. Lord Jesus, thank you for every person who's in the room, every person who's watching or listening to this online, and we ask once again together that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak into our lives, that you would help remind us of the realities of your kingdom, your kingdom that is in motion now and your kingdom that will be fully completed when someday you come back and restore everything to the way you always intended it to be. So Lord, help us to follow you, to love you, to respond to your Holy Spirit, and to be the people in the community you're calling us to be. And we ask this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's dive right into this passage, and as we usually do, I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and then we're going to begin to progress our way through it, and this is what it says. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. And then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. 
Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who they have been prepared for by my Father. And when the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, as always, there are so many layers and there's so much significance to this passage, and we're not going to be able to unpack all of it, but we are going to unpack what we can in the time that we have. And so it tells us that the mother of Zebedee's sons, which is James and John's mom, came to Jesus. And he asks, what do you want? And they want what anyone in our culture would say we all should want. First place, best seats, <laughs> the gold medal since it's Olympics time, right? Recognition, reward, this is, this is what we want. We want to go to the front of the line. And specifically, they ask if they could sit at Jesus' right and left. Now, to some of us, that might be kind of odd. What's the big deal of that? Well, in ancient culture, these were the best seats. These were the places of honor. The person who sat at your right that was the most distinguished, the most honored person at whatever gathering that was. So to sit at someone's right was a huge privilege, but not far behind it was the person who sat on the left. That also was distinguished and honorary, and oftentimes it was your closest friend or your most trusted person who sat at your left. So they're basically asking for the best seats in the kingdom of God. Now, we can look at this and pass by some, some realities that are swimming around in this, this doesn't look as outrageous as it, as it may seem. Because if we think back to the flow of this passage, Jesus has just finished answering Peter's question where Peter said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's, what's going to be in it for us? And he tells them and gives them this amazing promise that when the kingdom fully comes, when Jesus comes back a second time, they're going to rule over and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are pretty important positions. And so, assumably, this must have been swimming around in James and John's heads, as well as James and John and Peter were the future leadership of the early church. And Jesus is already granting them great privilege as well as great responsibility because we're constantly seeing him take just the three of them to certain miracles or certain events that are happening. Think back with me to Matthew chapter 17. When the transfiguration happens, they're the only ones who get to go up the mountain with Jesus. So he's very deliberately training and preparing them to be leaders. They know that they're expected to be leaders. And so as leaders, they expect to have the best and the most prestigious places. But now we come to some other things that are in this passage. It says, the mother of Zebedee's sons. So mama bear here is advocating for her kids. And isn't that what moms do and should do, is to advocate for their children. 
you know, my first real exposure to this and to this reality was when I was a middle school pastor. And unfortunately, in that season of life, Jamie and I hadn't been married very long, so we hadn't had kids yet. And I wish I would have been a parent at that time because I would have understood Mama Bear much more sympathetically and much better. Because every year, especially when we did our overnight camp um, that we called the Summer Scream, it was this water skiing camp, and um, we took all these kids with us overnight. For many of them, it was their first time, first time ever being gone from family someplace else overnight, all alone. And so Mama Bear would come to me with all these questions, and I just would have to struggle with not rolling my eyes at her and going, I, I promise we're going we're to take good care of your kids. You know, we bat a 1,000 around here. We take 180 kids to this camp. We bring 180 back every year. It's going to be okay. But she was just rightfully advocating in those circumstances for her kids. There is some of that going on here, but this is also something interesting that I learned with this passage this week. If we start to do some biblical math here, and we look at the other Gospels of John and Luke and Mark, and we begin to put some pieces together, many scholars believe that this was Salome, not Salami, but Salome, who is one of the women who we see traveling with Jesus. She's at his crucifixion. She's at the resurrection of Jesus. So she's constantly around him. And you begin to put two and two together, especially John 19 tells us that this was Mother Mary's, the mother of Jesus, Mother Mary's sister. So James and John presumably are Jesus's cousins. This is Auntie Salome. So this isn't just Mama Bear coming to Jesus. This is Auntie Salome coming to Jesus, or Salome, and she is making a personal request. She's not just asking because she's mom. She's also asking because she's auntie, and she's leveraging her personal power, her familial connection to Jesus to get what her sons have actually put her up to ask. And how did the disciples respond? How would you respond? How would I respond? Who do you think you are? They're indignant, and understandably so. How well do any of us do when someone else cuts to the front of the line ahead of us? You remember California license plate guy last week who we talked about? Who loves to cut in ahead of me when I'm on my way to the west side when the lanes are merging? And by the way, once again, in case you missed it the first time, if you're one of those people who cuts ahead of everybody when it's time to merge, repent on behalf of the rest of us. But that being said, we don't do real well when we perceive someone is cutting in line or someone's cutting ahead of us. And that's exactly how the disciples feel. They're indignant. Who do you think you are? But amazingly and fascinatingly, Jesus doesn't respond that way. That's not how he responds at all. How does he respond? He says, do you really know what you're asking for? Do you really understand what you're getting into? Do you know what's ahead of you? And then he refers to this cup, which is this metaphor, this, this a representation all throughout Scripture of basically your divinely appointed destiny. And it can mean blessing or it can mean suffering to drink from the cup. And clearly in this case and in this context of what Jesus has said, this is talking about the cup of suffering. Jesus has just said, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be shamed, I'm going to be condemned, and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die a horrible, shameful, public, excruciating death. Do you really know what you're getting into? You want to drink from that cup? 
And they say, we can, and we do, and we will. And Jesus says, you will indeed drink from my cup of suffering. And that is exactly what happened. This was prophetic. This really did play out. We're told in Acts chapter 12 that James was the first apostle to be martyred. King Herod had him arrested and executed. John went on to write the book of Revelation for us, exiled on the island of Patmos. And history suggests, we don't know this for sure, but that he died a martyr's death from being boiled alive because he was a follower of Jesus. So they would indeed drink from the cup of suffering. But Jesus goes on to say, but that is not my decision on who sits where. That is a decision of of the Father. But there is a reality that is surfaced here for us about life in the kingdom. And there is this consistent pattern, Old Testament to New Testament, that first there is suffering and then there is glory. Now, I understand, I am completely with you, that the immediate context of this is Jesus will suffer and then enter into glory. The disciples will suffer and then experience glory. But this pattern carries itself all throughout Scripture. And I'll give you just a couple verses that underscore this reality for you and me. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And some of you live that every day in your relationships. Other places, in fact, almost the entire book of 1 Peter talks about suffering for following Jesus. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now, in all fairness, I look at these passages, and the first thing I think is, yeah, I like to go to the front of the line and not do that suffering thing. Can I just bypass that? Is there another way around that? Is there another option? Is there anyone who likes to suffer? Of, of course not. None of us want to sign up for that. But the reality is this, and it's a reality that is easy to overlook and easy to lose touch with, and that is if you choose to follow and love Jesus Christ, there is a cost associated with that. And the question isn't if you will suffer for that. The question is when you will suffer in some way, shape, or form for that. Which then begs, I think, the ultimate question and a true question of the heart. Is it worth it? You ever found yourself questioning that? Asking that question? when you're suffering with whatever that looks like for following Jesus, when it's costing you, is this really worth it? Because the reality is, because we are broken people living in this broken world, and yes, the kingdom of God is in motion, and it's here, but it's not fully complete yet till Jesus comes back and completely restores and redeems and repairs everything. This is not a question of if but when for you and me. And you'll have to do business with this question at some point. Some of us will wrestle with this question at multiple points. And yet I think the answer that truly speaks to this, that looks it in the eye and understands it and doesn't run from it, but allows God to use it in our lives 
is this. God does not waste pain. Therefore, neither should we. When are the times that you have grown the most in your life? When it's been easy? When the path ahead has been straight and clear and full of blessing? Or, in fairness, have you and I grown the most in our lives when it's been hard? When it has been a struggle? When we have suffered? And at the end of the day, what I come back and cling to, like what we read in the first part of this passage is this, when I'm struggling with this true, necessary question we all struggle with, is it worth it, Jesus, to follow you? Is the cost worth it? Ultimately, you and I can trust a God who will die for us. At the end of the day, that's the reality that we can cling to. When God doesn't make sense, when we're hurting, when it costs so much to follow him, at the end of the day, we can trust a God who will die for us. And then Jesus in this exchange with the disciples, as he's helping them understand what it means to live in the kingdom, he reminds them of of this reality. And that is, in that culture and in ours, authority is something that we gravitate to and the privileges that come with it. In fact, in our culture, in so many ways, shapes, and form, as we talked about in the sermon preview earlier this week, our culture measures greatness at the end of the day by, by authority, by power. What position do you have? What privileges do you have? What is the scope of your influence? Greatness is measured by how much you have. How much money do you have? How much position do you have? How much significance do you have? And yet Jesus says that's not what life in the kingdom is all about. And boy, did they understand authority because in that culture they were under Roman occupation and so few of us have any frame of reference for what life must have been like for them. It's comparable to what life must have been like in Nazi-occupied countries in World War II where authority was absolute, where if you stepped out of line it cost you your life where you did exactly what you were told to do or else. This was the kind of environment they were in. You know, one of the things I so love about The Chosen and that video series is that it really does give a better appreciation for how hard life was, what it was like to be under Roman occupation, what it was like to have no power, no voice, to have people in authority over you. And in that kind of a culture, boy, you would do everything possible to somehow get some semblance of authority and autonomy because... It felt like oxygen. You absolutely needed that. And Jesus says, no, that's not what authority looks like in the kingdom of God. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you serve. And he takes the two lowest positions in that culture, a servant where you were hired to do things other people didn't want to do, or a slave where you were forced to do things other people didn't want to do. He takes these two lowest positions and flips them and says, that's greatness in the kingdom of God. Serving others is greatness in the kingdom of God. So, are you great? Are you great in how you live your life? By how you serve others? 
and this is where it gets incredibly challenging, but let's go there. When is the last time you served someone who didn't deserve it? When is the last time you served someone and you never got thanked for it? You never got recognized for it. You never got appreciated for it. That, my friends, is greatness in the kingdom of God. And can I just say, and I would say this about you if I wasn't part of this church family, this is a great church because it's filled with people, children, students, adults who serve. And that was just on display this last week. Do you know how much serving went on this last week and in the weeks and months prior and in these weeks that will follow that will never get recognition, never get appreciation, but was selfless serving? And I know I'm going to leave someone out, but Jen Ingram, Robin Brown, our children preschool ministry assistant um, coordinator, uh, Jacob Squared, Jacob Adler, our producer, Jacob Hansen, our outreach leader, our facilities crew, Dave Pritchard, Dina Sturhoff, who is the glue around here for everything, Stephen Anderson, our student ministry pastor, Gabe, Gabe Myers, our Hispanic ministries pastor, and I know I'm leaving someone out, but they served all day, morning and evening, every single day. After our elder meeting this last week, I'm usually the last one out of the building after those, um, and it's usually pretty late at night. And when our elder meeting ended, in fairness, it ended a little early this last go-around, but for the first time in a long time, I wasn't the last one out of the building. There were still those folks and several others in this building wrapping up the day and getting ready for the next day of VBS. They practically lived here. Not to mention all of you who, who gave in some way, shape, or form. A number of you took vacation in order to make this week work so that you could serve. A number of you, after working a full-time job, served at our evening session. I could go on and on, and you'll never get publicly recognized. But that's great. That's greatness in the kingdom of God. Serving, not because you have to, but because you choose to. And if we need any motivation, any inspiration to do this, it's Jesus himself. And I love the reality, I love the fact that this verse was one of the memory verses for our kids at VBS. If you really want to understand this verse, ask one of your grandkids or ask one of your kids. They memorized this verse this week. But it says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so what does that mean, to give his life as a ransom for many? Well, well, Jesus actually has already answered this question in this very passage that we read, that he is going to go to a cross and suffer and take upon himself all of our brokenness, all of our selfishness, all of what the Bible calls our sin, and he's going to die the death that we should die in order to give us the life that we can now live because he pays the price for, for all of our selfishness and sinfulness. It, it's the message at the heart of the gospel, and therefore we have a freedom that we can exercise and live because of what he's done for us. And I'd like to just 
unpack a little bit more of, of what this means that he paid the ransom for us in order, to, in order to free us. You know, we all start out at the same place. We're, we're apart from Jesus Christ. We are broken. We're sinful. We're selfish. We primarily worship ourselves. We make life all about us by our motives, by our actions, by what we do, by what we don't do. But sin isn't ultimately about breaking or keeping rules. Sin is about a break in relationship with God and with others. And Jesus rescues us from that, uh, rescues us from that by ransoming us from that. And there are many pictures of this in the Bible. This is one of my most favorites. It's out of the Old Testament, and it's in the book of Hosea. And if you want to read more about this for yourself, this is the first three chapters of that little but powerful book in the Old Testament. But Hosea was a prophet, and he was called to go to the nation of Israel who was disobeying God and living their lives independent of God and living out their brokenness and selfishness and sinfulness. And so he's told by God to go and illustrate what God wants to do for the people if they will respond to him, but to illustrate what's currently going on and how it impacts God himself. And so Hosea is told to go and marry a prostitute, and her name is Gomer. And Try to look past the name. So he goes and marries this prostitute, and she continues as his wife to continue to prostitute herself. And it was a picture of what the nation was doing. And sin, in the Old Testament especially, is often portrayed as unfaithfulness and prostituting ourselves and cheating on God and betraying him and wronging him. And that's what the people was doing. And so to illustrate this, Hosea goes and marries this prostitute. She continues to prostitute herself. In the course of their marriage, they actually have three children together, and she's still prostituting herself. And then finally, one day, she doesn't come home. And he goes looking for her because God tells him, go looking for her. And he finds her with this man who is using her and abusing her. He isn't even feeding her. And so Hosea comes and brings food to her. And it says that it's given, but we don't know if she receives it or if the husband, well, not husband, the man she's living with takes it and never gives it to her, but it's this broken picture and yet this hopeful picture of this husband who will not give up on his bride who continues to betray him, and it's a picture of God with his people. And then she comes home for a little while, and then she runs away again, and in Hosea chapter 3, God tells Hosea, go find her again. And this time, she's not with the same guy. She's actually been with multiple guys, and now no one wants her. And because no one wants her, she's being sold as a slave. And we know how those ancient slave markets worked. You were stripped naked, you were paraded in front of everybody, and then the bidding started. And many, if not all the people in that crowd were the very men who had already used her. And they didn't want her. And then the bidding starts. And she hears a familiar voice. It's the voice of her husband. And he bids the freedom price for her. And the picture of this husband doing this is of a man who literally is emptying his pockets and giving everything to buy this bride back 
who has continually betrayed him and wronged him and cheated on him and prostituted herself to other men. And he empties his pockets and he buys her back. And now she's his again, legally. And how is he going to treat her? She comes to him and it says in Hosea 3 that he gives her a robe. He covers over her shame and her nakedness. He restores her to the place of his wife, his bride. He gives her her life back, her dignity back, and her freedom back. And then the story ends. So what happened? What did she do with her freedom? Did she go back to prostituting herself and betraying her husband who has given everything to buy her back from that, to ransom her from her brokenness and sin? Does she continue to allow her passions to rule her or does she finally live out her freedom and begin to rule her passions rather than them ruling her? We don't know. And one of the reasons why that story is open-ended and we don't know the end is because it's not just a story. It is your story. And it is my story. The story is still being written. So how does this story end? You finish this story, and so do I. Will we take the freedom, the reality, that Jesus has ransomed us from selfishness and sinfulness and brokenness and now live out the freedom that he gives us through the empowerment of his Holy Spirit to be faithful to him, to trust and obey him, even when it looks like someone else cuts to the front of the line ahead of us, even when it costs us to follow him, will we be faithful in following him? You're the one who answers that question. And my friends, for some of you who are in the room, who are online, watching this live or as a recording or listening to it later, once again, this God comes to you and he asks you if you will respond to him, if you will receive him into your life as your Lord and Savior, do you really think that it's coincidence that you're hearing this message, maybe for the first time, maybe once again, it's this God coming to you, calling you to faithfulness, calling you to right relationship with him, calling you to a freedom that you will find in no other place. You certainly won't find it in religion. You won't find it in the stuff you have. You will find it only in right relationship with Jesus Christ. So will you receive him into your life? And as our worship team comes, and as we prepare to respond to what we've heard from his word, for those of us who do know and love the Lord, are you betraying him this morning? Are you wronging him by your motives, by what you're doing, what you're not doing? You don't have to live like that. In fact, he wants you to come back to him. He wants you once again to love him and to follow him. This God who has emptied his pockets, who literally has given his entire life so you don't have to live like that anymore. Will you repent? Will you turn from that and choose to believe him for what he promises you? Because you can. He empowers you by his Holy Spirit to do so. 
And so my friends, we're going to sing about this freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. It's our reality. It's our hope. And it's ours to have. So let's live it. Let's sing about it. Let's experience it. And he is such a great God. Only a great God could offer us forgiveness and hope after we have betrayed him time and time and time again. He wants to receive us back. He wants to forgive us because he loves us and because of his grace. And when you've experienced his grace, when you've received him into your life as your Lord and Savior, then you can live the way he does through the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, repenting, turning away from sin and turning to God is a one-time thing and it's an ongoing thing, sometimes a moment-by-moment thing. And any one of us here, for those of you who are in person, who has a name tag like this, we would love to pray with you. We would love to encourage you. We would love to share our journeys together. And part of growing in the Lord means being honest about your brokenness, about what he's calling you away from. And so we're, we're here to help. We're not here to judge or condemn. Some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I don't know anybody here. If I come up to someone with a name tag, how, how do I ask for help? What are they going to think? We're going to think you're just like us. You're someone who needs the grace of God. We're here to help. If we can pray for you in any way, we sure want to. For those of you who are worshiping with us online, if you go to our website in the footer, there's a link there for prayer. You go to that and one of us will reach out to you just as soon as we can this week. But this is something that we do together because the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That is who you are if you know Jesus Christ. So let's now go live like that. Lord, I pray for all of us, including myself, that we would remember who you are, that you have ransomed us, you have rescued us, you have redeemed us from brokenness and betrayal and sinfulness, and you call us to a life of hope, a life of trusting and obeying and following you, even when it costs us, because it is worth it to follow you. And when nothing else makes sense, would we remember that we can trust a God who would die for us, who would ransom and pay the ultimate price for us with his life in order to give us true life. So Lord, thank you for your grace. Would we now go and live that out? Would we be distinctive in how we give, in how we forgive, and how we are faithful to you, and in how we love others? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So now go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for sermon audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.